basically trying to prepare ourselves for where we are going and who we're becoming, wherever it is that we are. And we've been doing that by looking at places in the Bible in which God meets people uh, in the mountains or at the lake on the shore. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus meeting some people on the shore. And today, we're going to go to an Old Testament passage from the book of Jonah. And it's in the book of Jonah, in that first chapter, where Jesus, uh, excuse me, where God uh, meets Jonah in a storm while he's out to sea. And so with that in mind, let's look at this particular passage. Uh, Young and old, maybe we're familiar with it. This is the word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so, so the, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray? Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this ancient text with our very, very modern lives, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and grace. Lord, I pray that it would speak to us as palpably, as clearly as it did way back then. Lord, I pray that in the ways that we're restless, that you would calm us. Lord, make us wise, beautiful, uh, make us people of grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you look at this passage, the general thrust is what? That, J that Jonah was called by God to go to this great city, to go to Nineveh, and urge them, call them to repent. Pretty simple. He's a prophet. That's what he does, and yet he doesn't. 
He doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He runs in the opposite direction. Now, this is a reflection. Jonah has lived through this experience, and now he's looking back, and he's trying to teach others what he didn't know then. He wants us to see now what he wasn't aware of at the time. Um, and that is, I think, one of the themes that we can, we can glean from that is that when men run from God, though they have good reasons, they don't do it based on reason. When men run from God, though we have good reasons, we don't do it based on reasons, right? We're rational creatures. We're thoughtful creatures. But oftentimes the Bible teaches us that when we run from God, we're operating from a different principle. We're operating from a different place. We're operating from our emotions, that we're far more inclined to follow or run away from God, I should say, because we've not examined our our emotions, those things that are going on within us. And so obviously we're a diverse group of people here today. Uh, that's always the case. It should be always the case within a church. It's probably particularly uh, the case in a church in New York City. And so we probably have people here that define themselves, identify as somebody who's spiritual, but not necessarily religious. Uh, we have people here that maybe grew up in the church, but now uh, in this season of life, they're beginning to rethink their faith rethink Christianity, deconstruct, right, is what it's called. Uh, we also have people here that are Christians and been Christians for a long time and love to serve, love being in Christian community, love to get into passages like this and just chop it up with other people. And yet, when we're alone, we have a hard time praying or we have a hard time being alone with God. And what the Bible teaches is that in all of these ways, all of these people are all running from God in their own way. In the journey of life, we are, we're always constantly trying to get away, trying to run from God. And so what we learn here is not only when we run, that we're running not just based on reason, uh, not because of our reason, but also the idea or the ability to return to God is far more complicated and far more difficult than we tend to think. You know, repent means to just turn and walk in that another direction. That's all that it means, right? To turn from one thing and go to another. But we see here that it is very difficult to actually do because sometimes we run so far from God that not only do we find ourselves alone, sometimes we're in the midst of a storm, sometimes we're all the way out to sea. And so what can we learn here? Well, there's an African proverb that says the, the one who asks questions doesn't lose his way. The one who asks questions doesn't lose his way. So let's, let's ask some questions. Let's ask some questions so that we don't lose our way, all right? So what are the questions? Why, what, and who? Why does Jonah run? What fills him with regret? And then who comes to his rescue? So why does Jonah run? Uh, Jonah is called to this great city to speak evil against it, yet he goes in the exact opposite direction. And of course, maybe you know this, but if you were to see this on a map, Nineveh is here, and, and Jonah is called to go up straight north. What is he, he does is he goes straight south. He goes in the exact opposite direction. And he goes to Joppa, and he gets on a boat, and he says, 
take me even further. And in a sense, he's kind of saying, take me to the ends of the world. I want to get as far away from what God is calling me to do as humanly possible. And he pays the fare to do it. So in un, no unmis, you know, it's unmistakable. He doesn't want to go. So he has this opportunity to preach. So he has an opportunity to serve, to bring about justice, to extend compassion, to save many from destruction. Um, he doesn't do that. Now, if we were just to pause right there, there was no other text. You know, we could very well come to this text and say, he sounds very familiar because he recognizes God. God has a particular plan for his life, but he chooses to do something else. He follows another truth. He follows his own truth. It's a very common understanding in our culture. And it's a, you know, a very, it's thought to be a very valid form and way of life. Yes, I believe in God. I, I have a positive response to God. And yet when it comes to my life, I believe he, he, would, he desires for me to follow my own truth. And he watches over. But that's actually not what the passage shows us. Uh, in the passage, we see that um, <clears throat> the reason that he doesn't obey God, the reason that he doesn't go to Nineveh, is because he's hounded by something. He's hounded by his memories, I'll say. Now, memories, you and I know that our memories, they're just so embedded in us. They're in our bones. Uh, and they have their way with us all, all the time. Many of us came to New York because of things that happened in our past. We were able to persevere because we cling to these memories. Sometimes they inspire us and help us overcome, and sometimes they enslave us. But memories are a powerful, powerful aspect of what it is to be human. Uh, Susan was reading the biography, autobiography of Viola Davis. And Viola Davis is an actress. I don't know. I don't think you could be a more accomplished artist in our culture than Viola Davis. Uh, and yet, I don't know that you can have a more difficult life than Viola Davis. Um, she's probably won every award there is. But her story, which is called Finding Me, um, it's so profound and heartbreaking. But she talks a lot about the power of memory in her life. And I would encourage adults uh, to listen, as Susan encouraged me to listen. And I was struck by one particular anecdote that she shares at the very top. I think it's in the first chapter. Now, granted, she's a movie star at this point, right? That's how good she actually is. And she recalls this story in which she's on the set with Will Smith. And this is like five, six, I don't know, 10 years ago. And they're having a conversation. He says to her, Viola, do you know who you are? And she says that she gets indignant. She says, do I know who I am? Of course I know who I am. And he says, no, do you know who you are? He says, look, I'm always going to be that 15-year-old boy whose girlfriend broke up with him. That's always going to be me. So who are you? So she begins to reflect. She says, who am I? And she says, I was quiet. And once again, that indestructible memory hit me. Then I just blurted it out. I'm the little girl who, 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 ran, who, ran after, who ran home every day after school in the third grade because these boys hated me because I was not pretty, because I was black. She says, Will stared at me as if seeing me for the first time and just nodded. 
My throat got tight and I could feel the tears welling up. Memories, she says, are immortal. They're deathless and precise. They have the power of giving you joy and perspective in hard times, or they can strangle you, define you in a way that's based more on other people's tucked up perceptions than truth. There I was, she says, a working actress with steady gigs, Broadway credits, multiple industry awards, and a reputation of being professional and, and excellent in every project. Heck, she says, Oprah knew who I was. Yet sitting there conversing with Will Smith, I was still that little terrified black, uh, that terrified third grade black girl. And though I was many years and many miles away from Central Falls, Rhode Island, I had never stopped running. My feet just kept, stopped moving. I never stopped running, my feet just stopped moving. So what she's saying, memories have the power to move us. They have the power to uh, shape us, to form decisions. They have the power to move our feet, to determine our steps. And we may never even know why we're doing the things we're doing. Memories were powerful for her. They're powerful for Jonah. In verses one through three, it recalls why he doesn't go. He says, go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness. Now, what's the first memory that Jonah is dealing with? It's the memory of the atrocities of Nineveh. Jonah would have been fully aware of who the Ninevites were. They were his great enemy. They would have been, uh, uh, they were, uh, you know, the next door neighbors who brutalized his generation who brutalized the generations that came before him. So he would have had uncles and family member and people in his community that bore the scars of the Ninevites. That was in his memory, seared into his memory. He would have known of their atrocities. He would have known of their atrocities, but he also had another memory. And that is the memory of God's mercy. The memory of God's unrelenting grace. And he flees from God's command here because he cannot imagine that the grace of God is going to come and live in the hearts of those who victimized his people. That's the last thing he could ever want. Uh, he knew that if they showed a hint of repentance, that God would show an abundance of compassion and kindness. So that's why he runs. Why does he run? Because of old memories and new. He runs because he can't imagine that God's redemptive plans, his grace, would come to live amongst the people that he loathed. And so he becomes a rebel. And in becoming a rebel, not only does he become one who cannot extend grace, but now he becomes one who desperately needs it himself. Now, grace, just wrapping up this first point, is a hard topic for us. We don't live in a culture in which we have clear, defined moral laws. You know, our hearts are more subjective. And so in a culture that says, hey, look within, follow your own truth, it's very hard for us to recognize that maybe I'm in need of grace, that in any way I may have crossed a boundary, that I may have displeased uh, God or gone against the commands of God. Uh, grace is hard for us because we're uncertain and we, we can't even imagine that maybe we would have offended a good and loving God. J.R. Packer wrote in, a, in, a, in his book, 
um, knowing God. He describes the culture as a moral desert. He says, the thought of us as creatures fallen from God's image as possible rebels, rebels against his rule, guilty and unclean in God's sight, fit for only God's condemnation, has no room in a culture in which morality is always changing. So why does he run? Because of these memories, this internal dialogue that makes him disobey the God who's actually his dear friend. Second, what fills Jonah with regret? So Christians believe that human beings were made to be in a deep, in deep community with God. Uh, we see Jonah run from God, rebel against God, and when he rebels, it has this powerful effect on him that's written in a literary style. Uh, as soon as Jonah flees, he begins to experience the effects of regret. And we can see this uh, in the writing. It says that he goes down, 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 down. Uh, first, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the inner part of the ship. And then he, he goes even further down by laying down and falling fast asleep. And it's not in this particular chapter, but you know that when he's thrown overboard, that he continues to drift down, down, down until he's at the very bottom of the sea. And so what we know is that Jonah is not just heading in the wrong direction, but because he's going in the wrong direction, he's on a decline. He's descending deeper, deeper into a kind of despondency. And so just like the ship, Jonah's coming undone, but he doesn't react. He's too despondent. He's too depressed. He's too immobilized to do anything about it. Hugh Martin says that he's in a sleep of sorrow. Hugh Martin's this old, old commentator. He says the desire to escape reality, even for a little while, profoundly spent and exhausted. Jonah's drained by powerful emotions of guilt, anger, anxiety, and grief. And yeah, this is poetic, right? But it's also a pretty accurate depiction of somebody who does struggle with depression who's somebody who is despondent because of the circumstances of life. Um, some of you know, I've told this story before, uh, so bear with me, but I, I once knew a person who was so depressed that um, they spent hours and hours at home in bed, uh, all alone. Uh, one day this person got up to make something to eat and in the middle of making something to eat on the stove, this person went back to bed and the house caught on fire. Uh, the alarm went off, but the person was so despondent that they didn't care. Soon the police, or the police, the firemen broke down the door of her apartment and they put out this fire and they went around the house looking for whatever took place or who was there. And this person was so despondent that she didn't cry out for help at all. She actually hid in her bed with the covers over. They never saw her. The fire took place. They came and put it out. Uh, they came and left. And they never knew that she was right there the whole time. She stayed in bed for many more hours until her family came home. Such is the power of despondency and depression. Um, it is paralyzing, isn't it? And it's spiritually speaking, not that different. Why was he filled with regret? 
I think you could probably make a case that he's filled with regret because he became the very thing that he hated. He became one who made God his enemy. He became one who refused to extend grace to others. And as he turns from God, as he turns from humanity, he becomes less human, becomes less himself. He begins to break down. He's guilty of the very same things that the Ninevites were. So let me ask, are you running? Too direct, I know. How are you running? Why are you spiritual but not religious? You know, one of the things that is interesting here is that questions are put to him. And it's only as these questions by these strangers are put to him that he begins to resuscitate. So some of you don't know me at all, and yet I'll ask some questions that maybe, I hope, help us. Why are you spiritual but not religious? Where did you learn that phrase? Who taught a whole culture that mantra? What leader taught you that? What does that even mean to be spiritual but not religious? Um, what memory makes that idea resonate with you and I? What memory is making you deconstruct your faith that causes you to doubt, that causes us to be so cynical, so skeptical? What memory is there or memories there that cause us to think that the church is not a place where God actually lives and moves and has his very being? What makes us think that this is the place we have to run from? What are those memories? And do you have a memory of a place or a God who is full of compassion and grace? who pursues those who rebel against him, who even brings storms into their life in order to wake them up. He was filled with regret. He was filled, he was despondent, and yet God sends people to rescue him. And who does he send to rescue him? And this is the third point. Who comes to his rescue? These shipmates. These people that lived on the other side of the world, these mariners, these kind of, you know, you know, I don't even, kind of pirates or fishermen, who knows? They come to his aid. They begin to ask questions that good community should ask of each other. And how do they treat him? Treat him with care and concern, with respect. They respect Jonah. And you see, eventually, they come to respect his God. They come to even worship him. They come to bow down before this God. In every way, these shipmates outshine Jonah. In every way, they are more faithful than he is. All the commentators for long, you know, hundreds of years have said, this is the, one of the best rebukes of the church the church could ever hope for. Because here you have people outside the church who are acting like the church. 
or acting like the church should act. You, you, they recognize that Jonah's problems are their, their problems. In a sense, they're all in this ship together. Have you heard that phrase? Where do you think that came from? From Jonah. And so, you know, as Storefront Church, we've been here for a while now. And as uh, we've been plotting and scheming, that's another, that's a diabolical way of, of, of uh, planning. Uh, we've been planning to love this neighborhood. This passage has been super informative. I mean, Susan and Chantal and I and many others have just poured over this passage and thought, that's how we're supposed to behave. That's how we're supposed to act. The realization that we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. Um, and part of being in the same boat is to look around the city and to see its great need. You know, all Jonah could see, though, was the brokenness of Nineveh, the corruption of Nineveh, the immorality of Nineveh. But God sees something more. What does God see? He says, that is a great city. Great means beautiful, big, vibrant, important. That is a great city. Go there. Because you're all in the same boat. I have many people there. I love that city. Go there. God loves this city. He loves this neighborhood. This is a great neighborhood. It's a diverse neighborhood. There's a lot of problems in this neighborhood. Gentrification and crime. And you know, there's a massive disparity in income in this neighborhood. People are isolated and alone. Right, all these things, and it could be very easy for some very righteous, moral person to come in here and see only the prob only the problems. But it takes a community that has just been shaped by grace, that knows this love of this God who just pursues and pursues and pursues to say that is a great neighborhood, to see more than just the brokenness, but to see the beauty, and to work for towards that. Uh, learn here that private faith is of no public good. Private faith is of no public good. They come to Jonah, and what do they say? They say, arise, call on your God. Our gods aren't working. Call on yours. And that's exactly how Christians are supposed to function in the world, in any world. And in a sense, that's what we're trying to do through this neighbor space, that we are an incarnational presence to love whoever comes through those doors and anybody in, the, in our sphere, right? We are not doing a public good by keeping our faith private. In a sense, we're trying to arise as well, too. And we've been pleasantly surprised at the people that we've come to meet and uh, not only love, but to be loved by, and to be shaped by, and to create new memories with. And so that's what Christians, of course, are, are called to do. That's called to keep our faith private, though the world would encourage that. But to be public, to be public. So how do we do that? Why should we do that? How can we do that? Well, it's helpful to look at a greater Jonah. You know, Jesus Christ actually refers himself 
to refers to himself as the greater Jonah. And there's a few reasons why that is true. But I think in one sense, it has a lot to do with the storm. You know, he's helped by the, the ship, right? They become, in a sense, his brothers on the ship. But commentators look into the storm and they say the storm in some sense was the greatest factor because it's in the storm which in which is the pre- the power of the presence of god is palpable in his life and then matthew or excuse me mark 4 jesus is in a boat and he's with strangers who have become brothers and a storm comes on the sea of galilee and everybody's panicking and they in a sense say to him arise and he his behavior is so startling because he acts because he's not startled. That's why. <laughs> it's as though he's like, I've been here before. I know how this goes. And he quiets the storm. He stills the storm, though he'd been asleep. That's a historical event that's a really beautiful image for all of us. Every person here has a storm in your life right now. It could be a good storm. It could be a, it could be a horrible storm. We're all dealing with, with it in varying degrees, right? But, the, but what we have here is a God who is the Lord of the storms of our lives. They saw that in Nineveh, or excuse me, on the ship, and they turned and they repented. They had less information about God than you and I do. And they had every reason to repent, but they did gladly, truly. And they made vows. They committed even before Jonah did to this God. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But now something greater than Jonah is here. Very lastly, Jonah, of course, is thrown overboard, isn't he? He's thrown overboard as a sacrifice. And they say, don't condemn us because we're sacrificing this man because we have to kill this man. But that is a picture of Christ. Jesus is a greater Jonah because he wasn't just thrown over into the ocean, but he was thrown into the ocean of God's wrath and judgment, right? He's a greater Jonah because he wasn't just in the water for three days and swallowed up by a belly of a fish and... and uh, What's that Christian word that we use? What is it? When you rise from the dead, resurrected, spat out. But Jesus really was resurrected. He really was resurrected. He's the greater Jonah. So we are filled with reasons to run, and yet we're called to believe and stop running. We're called to believe and make new memories. We're called to believe and know others, uh, to walk with others, to help people bring healing for their memories, which the book of Revelation says that one day God will heal. That's what it means when it says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It means that in heaven, you will remember your life. And he will wipe away those tears, which is a healing gesture. 
Let that be true. Let that let us be a community that just embodies that kind of healing power and presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whether we actually go on vacation or not, Lord, I pray that you would teach us not to run from you. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who pursues us at all costs, even at the cost of your son. Lord, I pray that he would, by his spirit, calm the storms that are at work in our hearts. Help us to be loving people in light of his truth. We pray this in his name. Amen. So we're going to come to the table here in a minute, but this is an opportunity to continue to worship as we give. And giving means giving all of ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our time, and our financial uh, resources as well. Let's do that as, as we continue to worship.